I was born in 1950. It was a glorious year. But many more things happened that were more important. One of them was a play was written by Eugene Ionesco called The Bald Soprano. I recommend that you see if you can get it on YouTube and watch it. It's very funny, but it comes from a genre called the theater of the absurd. And just as the title suggests, it's very absurd. The humor is just incredible, but it's, it's got this negative edge and this despairing edge. It was an age Albert Camus was the big philosopher of the time, and, and everything was, was um, questioned. You know, how do we know? Uh, everything was, was, how do we know that we know? How do we know that there's a God? How do we know anything? And so in this theater of the absurd, a lot of things are played with and mocked, and, and, and we're, we end up with this feeling of, well, is this even real? One of the plays that was written somewhere during this time was called, uh, by Samuel Beckett, called Waiting for Godot. It's been at the Amundsen several times. Um, it's really theater of the absurd. Uh, two men, Dido and Fido, I don't remember their names, come, and they're waiting for Godot, G-O-D-O-T, God-O-T, Godot. All right, so they come to this place, and they somehow know they're supposed to wait for him, one is a little more dependent on the other, and, and the whole play is, well, is, is, is he coming? Well, when is he coming? I don't know. And, and they just have this conversation of waiting, 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 but he never shows up. It's in two acts, I believe, and there's a, a visitor, uh, three visitors, but one of them is a young man who comes two or three times to say, oh, he's not coming today, he'll come tomorrow. Really? So they come back the next day. And they're waiting, and then they bring it up again. Well, he isn't here. I don't know. Are you sure he's coming? Well, he said he's coming. I think he's coming. Well, I don't know if he's coming. It goes on like this for the whole play. Guess what? He never comes. I watched this in the seminary my senior year, and by the end of this play, I said, oh, my God, I just wasted two hours of my life waiting for Godot, and he never shows up. Never shows up. Now, in contrast to this play, We've got something much older. First of all, we have this first reading from Malachi, 450 years before Jesus came. This was written. It's the last book of the Old Testament, right before the Gospels. And it says, the Lord says, I'm coming. I'm coming. And when I come, I'm going to clean up this mess. Israel was corrupt. Jerusalem was corrupt. The temple was corrupt. And the Lord says, I'm coming like a refiner's fire, things are going to be different. I'm going to restore Jerusalem and Israel and Judah. And this is the great promise. And the people waited. They believed this. They waited and waited. So when we get to the gospel, we've got these two characters. Um, we've got Anna the prophetess and, um, there I go again, blanking, uh, Simeon, Simeon, Simeon. I want to say Samuel, Simeon. Now, Simeon uh, is an old man, and the Scripture says he was just and righteous before God. He was always at the temple. And it says that he was filled with the Spirit, and that the Spirit had revealed to him that he would not die before he saw the Christ of the Lord, the Messiah. So he went there every day, waiting. Not disappointed, but waiting, believing that he would see the Christ of the Lord. And the day comes. And when the Christ of the Lord comes, Jesus is brought in to be presented in the temple. 
Imagine it was just an ordinary day. Maybe there were several presentations that day. He must have seen hundreds, if not thousands, over the years. Jesus, Joseph and Mary walk in with Jesus, and filled with the Spirit, he goes right over and takes the baby. And he says, okay, Lord, now your servant can go in peace. Take me. I can die now. I've seen the Lord. This is a man of faith who, who recognizes and sees what Israel has been waiting for, for seemingly forever. And then after he says his part, there's another person there filled with the Spirit, Anna. It says that she had been married for seven years, probably as a young girl, 14 or 15. She, her husband died, and then for 84 years, every single day and every single night, she's in the temple fasting and praising God, waiting, 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 waiting. And then this huge prophecy comes out of her mouth about the Messiah and about even Mary having to suffer as a part of this whole mystery. Now, this is extraordinary stuff. People filled with the Spirit find and recognize the Lord. Well, Luke is the only one who writes these stories. Matthew, Mark, and John say nothing about Jesus' life as a child. There are two stories in Luke. When he's 40 days old, the presentation, and when he's 12 years old, he gets lost in the temple. Both take place in the temple. What's Luke doing? He's telling us something. And he's telling us through Simeon and Anna, I believe, they are to be our mirror, to look into them and their response and ask ourselves the same question. Do we recognize, do we see the Lord? We've read this scripture for over 2,000 years. There should be no excuse. We should be people who say, of course we know who the Lord is. And I think we say that. Hmm, but I ask the question, have we really recognized? Are we filled with the Spirit about this? Um, I wrote down this morning in my room, because it just jumped into my head. And I want you parents to think. Think what the response is, Okay. I believe almost all parents are pretty good about trying to teach their children values. They want to teach them their values, what they believed in, what has served them well. They hand them down, they hand them over, they say, you should be like this, you should talk like this, you shouldn't do this, you shouldn't talk like this. And they're very explicit. And they're trying, and they, they correct them when they do wrong. And when the day comes probably in their teenage years, not these teenagers, other teenagers, but probably where the, this person makes a big mistake, does, does something completely against their values, and the mother or father come in, and they could say it two or three different ways. This is what phrase, think, think, what is he going to say, what is he going to say? They look at their kid and say, you know better you know better. You know better. You know better. Why did you do this? Why did you do this? You know better. And I believe that today that's the phrase that should come to us. Do we know better? After 2,000 years of fellow Christians walking this journey before us and now with us, a billion Catholics in the world, all kinds of Christians, they all know this passage about Jesus presented in the temple. And they all know about Simeon and Anna seeing, 
recognizing and believing with all their soul, saying, wow, it happens before our eyes. And that's the question. Does it happen before our eyes? Do we see Christ? Now, you know, uh, here we are. We're going to have these young people who are preparing for confirmation. This is their second year. It's coming soon. And uh, they're going to renew their baptism promises. I'm going to ask everyone to remain seated and say them softly with them, but I want them to stand at that point and say them loudly because we're renewing our promises. They're actually renewing theirs. They're not making them. They're renewing their promises of baptism. But I know as a matter of fact that this is a very strange age. It's funny that we confirm at this time because there are many, some, maybe one, who, who have real doubts about faith. How do I know this is true? How do I know that there's a God? They asked that question. I did. I was in the seminary preparing to be a priest. I was 16, and that question nagged at me for about four months. How do I know this? I'm going off the testimony of others, this book, this scripture. How do I know? And I had to struggle in this dark place of, of not being sure and questioning. And I think that, that in the end, when I finally was able to embrace my faith in Jesus Christ in particular, I realized that the most important thing for me in my relation with Jesus Jesus Christ wasn't just to say he's the Christ, he's the Messiah, the Son of God. Yeah, 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 yeah. But the most important thing was to look at his life. Look at what he said. Look at what he taught. Look at what he preached. Look at what he lived. And you've heard me say it about a million times now. Look at that cross. That's, that's the place to put your gaze. Look at that cross. Look at that man naked and bloody and nails through his hands and feet and thorns in his head, accused, rejected, carried the cross, dying on the cross. And as he's dying, people still mocking him. Everybody here knows what it is to be mocked and rejected. Everybody's experienced that sometime in their life. And he's hanging on the cross after he's given three years of love and service to these people, pouring out his life every minute for them. Look. And he had every reason to hate them, but true to his word, true to his teaching, true to his preaching, true to his style of life. When the chips were down, when everything, everything was against him, he hung there and said, Father, forgive them all. They know not what they do. Now, I don't know about you, but that makes me believe. That makes me believe. And I'll tell you, that's something that I strive to live don't do it always, but I do it with my heart. I believe it. I want it. I struggle to do it. I trip and fall many a time, but it is my conviction that's the only way to live. Who would want to live their life with hate forever? I don't know if you're familiar with it, but there's a book that was made into a movie with Merle Streep, famous, my poor mind. Is it the choice? Is it the choice? I think it is. Huh? What? Sophie's Choice. Thank you. Who said that? Sophie's Choice. You must watch it. Better yet, read it, because a moment in the book happens. Now, I have to explain. Sophie was a Jew in Germany, 
Her whole family was arrested by the Nazis. Everyone in her family was killed. Father, mother, brothers, sisters, husband. She gets into a camp with her two children, and the commandant, shall I just say, wanted to use her, okay? But said this in his invitation for her to be used by him in his own house with his wife and children there, but he wanted to use her, and he said, if you do this, I will save, get this, she has a son and a daughter, one of your children, and she begs. She's willing to do whatever it takes, and she says, please, please, oh, save them both. He says, no, just one. She says, oh, no, please, please save them both. He says, no, just one, and you have to choose which one. And she says, what? I can't choose which one. He says, well, if you don't choose which one, uh, then both will die. This is her choice, Sophie's choice. So she says, she chooses one, knowing that by choosing one to live, she's choosing the other to die. She goes cuckoo. She's released uh, shortly after that, the war is over. She comes to the United States and she becomes a drunk and an addict and everything else because she's in a deep depression over her choice, Sophie's choice. Sophie's choice, it really sucked. It was a bad, difficult choice. Late in the book, it was this moment incredible. She says to God in this moment, she says, God, where were you in all of this? And this rare moment, the narrator of the book takes over and answers her question. So it isn't God answering or some other person, but she says, God, where were you in all of this? And the narrator, narrator says, where was man? Because it was man who did this. It wasn't God who did this. We love to blame God when things go wrong. And we pray to God when we're desperate. But in Sophie's choice, in Sophie's choice, she realized that she had lived her whole life in hatred after that. Now, I mean, my God, most of us don't have anything like the Holocaust to live through. But it's amazing. I sit in the confessional. I listen to people's lives. And I do hear hate and an unwillingness to forgive that goes on and on and on and on and on and on and on. He gives us a different model. He says, follow me. Listen, I have a message for you. I have life. I have words of life. You live this, you will live. Most dramatic is you'll never die. Because there will be something deep within you that will even supersede death. Today, we celebrate the presentation of the Lord. We have our little Santo Ninos up here. We look at the beautiful baby Jesus. But we're asked to be a Simeon and Anna who see and recognize and let the light in. Because if the light gets in and we become a people of the light, we can spend our lives giving off that light to others. How nice to be a people of light who bring light and hope and love to this world.